1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is the word of the Lord. So the Corinthian church was filled with division. It was planted by Paul, and then after Paul moved on to do other missionary work, other Bible teachers, other evangelists and pastors came and served this congregation. Apollos was one of them, another great teacher. Uh, Peter was there, a.k.a. Cephas. And in this passage, Paul points out that the root cause for their division, for their strife, for their fighting and arguing and jostling for position is being puffed up with pride and boasting. So what we're after here is the trait of humility. And that takes us to the very interesting subject of self-esteem. Traditionally, in cultures around the world throughout history, the, uh, a source for people's problems was considered to be hubris, the Greek word for pride. So if a person acted out, misbehaved, if a child misbehaved, if a person engaged in criminal behavior, if there were problems in society, strife, the thought was that a root cause for that was their, their hubris, their, their pride, right? Their too high a view of, of one's own self resulted in conflict. In our modern Western society, the view is the exact opposite. So we think, and it's taught from our educational system to our courtrooms, uh, from the classroom to the counseling session, 
throughout our society, we see evidence of our deep belief that at the root of our problems, of our personal problems, is our low self-esteem. We don't have a high enough view of ourselves, and so therefore, we engage in substance abuse, mistreatment of others, uh, abuse within the family, and mistreatment of coworkers, uh, bosses mistreating their employees. We, we might say, the problem here is, this person doesn't love themselves enough. This person needs some encouragement, they need their love tank filled up, and once that's full, then the goodness in their own heart will work its way out, and we will get along. That this is the solution to, this is the main part even of the solution to the problem of war and fighting in the world. The reason we don't have peace. But interestingly, a recent article uh, about 10 years ago was published in the New York Times by psychologist Lauren Slater called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. It wasn't a groundbreaking article or a bolt out of the blue. She was simply beginning to report what experts have known for years. The significant thing that she says is that there is no evidence that low self-esteem is a big problem in society. That's very different than everything we learned in school. She quoted three current studies into the subject of self-esteem, all of which reached that conclusion. And she stated that, quote, people with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. And feeling bad about yourself is not the source of our country's biggest, most expensive social problems. So for now, let's just say she's right and that it will take years and years for us to accept this. Because one reason, possibly the reason, we accept this idea is that we don't want to feel bad about ourselves. So as a solution, we've created an idea and set it into the laws, the teaching, the social mores of our culture, and it says, don't tell anybody that they're wrong. Don't offend. Because then you'll lower self-esteem, and, and that's the problem. We're very attracted to that idea because we want to feel good about ourselves, and we don't want anybody to judge us. This is a fundamental fleeing from the law of God. It's, a, it's trying to get out from under God's existence, God's righteous and good commandments, and our need to change, because change is painful. And getting out from under our own rule and getting under God's rule takes a fundamental lowering of oneself, and that hurts. And we're no longer like God which was the temptation for Adam and Eve. In this passage, Paul is going to take us somewhere entirely different from the traditional view of, the, of a root cause for the problem in society being our hubris, our pride, and from the modern view that a root cause for our misbehaving and acting out and, and our even self-abuse is our low self-esteem. So Paul is going to say, it's not exceedingly high self-esteem, it's not exceedingly low self-esteem, and he's not going to say, 
the middle ground is the right way. Three things Paul shows us here are the natural condition of the human ego, the transformed sense of self, which Paul had discovered and which can be brought about, which is brought about through encountering Jesus in the gospel over and over again, day after day, and how to get that transformed sense of self. It's important to know in studying this passage that the word Paul uses here for being puffed up is not the normal word for pride. In the NIV, it translates it pride. Um, don't have pride over against another. Here in the ESV translation, it's a little bit more literal and probably more faithful to what he's saying. It translates it not as pride, but as puffed up because it's a different word. This word is only used by Paul. It's only used uh, here and another five times in his letter to the Corinthians and once in Colossians 2. It's not used anywhere in the Bible elsewhere. Uh, it's a special theme of Paul, and I think we're supposed to pay close attention to the word he used and understand what it means. Literally, he's saying the natural condition of the human ego is to be puffed up. It's not the word hubris, the Greek word for pride, it's physio or something. By using this word, Paul is telling us that the natural condition of the human ego is literally overinflated, swollen, and distended beyond its proper size. So that means that the human ego has several qualities about it in its natural resting state. It is empty and painful, busy and fragile. It is empty because it has nothing in it. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a big enough, find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. Soren Kierkegaard says that the normal human ego is built on something else besides God. It searches for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, and a sense of purpose, and it builds itself on that. And of course, as all of us have heard in Christian culture, there's a God-shaped hole within us. And if you try to fill it with something other than God, it's still empty. Everything we put into the emptiness within us, that is, everything we put into our empty, swollen, overinflated ego, is so small that it doesn't take up any space. And while it might taste good for a minute, it might, f might make us feel just a little bit puffed up for a little bit, quickly we, real quickly we feel the pain of our distended ego. The natural state of the human ego is not just emptiness, but painfulness. If you think about it, you don't notice the parts of your body until they hurt until you have a little callus or rock in your shoe, you don't uh, notice your toes. Most of us don't go around walking through the day thinking, hmm, boy, my toes feel good today. 
our body parts only draw attention to themselves when there's something wrong with them. You don't normally think, boy, my elbows feel good today, unless you've lived for years with chronic elbow pain and all of a sudden you're pain-free. Then you might notice it. We, we say that our feelings get hurt. I'm thinking of the ego as a part of our body, as a body part. And when we say, my feelings are hurt, well, your, your feelings aren't really hurt. You feel one way or another. What hurts is your ego. The image, the word picture Paul is getting at here is that of an organ in the body that is swollen, distended, overinflated with air. The word physio or puffed up here, um, is closely related to the word for bellows. So a bellows is probably one of my favorite tools around the house because you can start a fire in your fire pit in like a minute with it. So it's a little device that you has a couple of handles and then an air bladder that, uh, with a little accordion-shaped sort of thing. And as you work the handles back and forth or in and out, it inflates the air pouch and then it forces out a, out a nozzle at the tip. You're, when, you, when you inflate the bellows before you squeeze the air out, you're puffing them up with nothing but a lot of air. So imagine getting air pumped into one of your organs. Imagine your stomach overinflated and distended. This is an uncomfortable word picture. We think even of perhaps an animal that we've seen uh, dead on the side of the road that is bloated as as the deadness inside it becomes apparent, chemically, through chemical processes, it is revealed that, uh, that it's the, the death in it becomes visible because it's being puffed up with air as it decomposes. So imagine walking around living with your heart or your ego puffed up, swollen, painful, beyond its normal limits. But that's our resting state. That's how we go through the day. Our ego is empty and painful. It's always drawing attention to itself because there's something wrong with it. It's the emptiness. And it's, it's busy. It's constantly trying to, um, to boast and to compare with somebody next to you or, or somebody else that you probably look down on, maybe, and so a source for your spiritual pride and boasting is this ego within you. A source for, uh, for feeling like there's nothing to you and like you're dumb and ugly and incompetent, that you are a failure, that you can't get anything right. And if you think about it, it's very hard for us to go through a whole day without feeling like that, right? That's everybody. It's because we're, we're, we're deflated. When the ego is deflated, it means that first, it was overinflated. Now it's deflated. The problem, the solution isn't to reinflate it. The solution in the first place wasn't to take some of the air out of it. It's empty, and it needs the right thing in it. It's busy, it boasts, it cries. It's always drawing attention to itself. Notice that Paul doesn't say here, don't be puffed up, period, or don't be proud, period. He says, 
don't be puffed up, don't be proud over against one another, um, or don't be puffed up against each other. So he is saying that the ego is constantly busy comparing itself to someone else. And that's where the boasting comes from. And that's what's causing our strife and infighting in our congregations and the world, world, in the world, the church worldwide. In C.S. Lewis's uh, famous book, Mere Christianity, he has a chapter on pride. In it, he points out that pride is, by nature, competitive. It is competitiveness that it is at the very heart of pride. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that we are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but we are not. We are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Pride is the pleasure of being more than the next person. Because the human ego is empty, fragile, and busy, or empty, painful, and busy trying to boast and compare, it's also fragile. It's in danger of being deflated. In Timothy Keller's uh, small booklet, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to True Christian Joy, he discusses a pop figure that he admires. He says, let me give you a perfect example of these things. I'm not trying to lift her up as being worse than other people at all. She actually shows a tremendous amount of self-awareness, and I have a lot of admiration for her. But if you want a perfect example of this, here is an excerpt from an interview with Madonna in Vogue magazine some time ago where she is talking about her career. This is what she says. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Keller says, I will tell you one thing. Madonna knows herself better than most of us know ourselves. Every time she accomplishes something, these are the kinds of thoughts she has. Now, I have got the verdict that I am somebody. But the next day, I realize that unless I keep going, I am not. My ego cannot be satisfied. My sense of self, my desire for self-worth, my need to be sure I am somebody is not fulfilled. I keep thinking I have won it from what people have said about me and what the magazines and newspapers have written. But the next day, I have to go and look somewhere else. Why? Because my ego is insatiable. It's a black hole. It doesn't matter how much I throw into it, the cupboard is bare. I keep putting all sorts of things into it every morning, feeding it, and the next night, it is bare. I have become somebody, but I still need to be somebody. 
I still need to become somebody. We might be tempted to think she is neurotic, but no, she knows herself. She is ahead of most of us. That is the normal state of the human self. It's what Paul is talking about to the Corinthians. All of these people who are fighting over him and claiming a special relationship to him or Apollos or Peter, Cephas, are showing tremendous amounts of pride. They're unable to enjoy the fact that they know Paul. They have to use their relationship with him for one-upmanship over against each other in the church. Paul wants them to know the difference the gospel makes and how the gospel has transformed things for him. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. He has this transformed view of himself. He is a servant. He's a servant of Christ, and he has a job to do. He has to be faithful. <clears throat> and he's using language, saying, well, who's going who's gonna to tell me whether or not I'm faithful? Is it you? <laughs> is it any human court? No. Is it me? No, I don't even judge myself. So imagine him standing on trial. Imagine yourself standing on trial every day, and there's the jury accusing you, or, or the judge holding up a gavel, waiting to decide whether or not you've, you've made the cut that day, whether or not you've acted rightly, you've behaved well, you've been a good enough Christian, a good enough mom, a good enough uh, employee, and, and the gavel is in your hand, and you're the one judging yourself, or maybe, you've, maybe the jury holds the gavel, they all have one, and hopefully one of them doesn't drop their gavel, and this hammer fall upon you and crush the balloon of your pride and deflate you. So one day, you're riding high, you're a great employee, you're a great son or daughter or whatever, and the next day, you're down here, and everything's going wrong, and you're no good, and nobody likes you, well, this is our normal experience. This isn't you or you or me, it's all of us. We all keep ourselves in this courtroom, and it's kind of not our own fault. We were born this way. This is our natural condition, <clears throat> to have an ego that is empty, painful, busy, and therefore fragile. But Paul here is saying, that he's not in the courtroom. He's not waiting for the Corinthians or any, anybody to judge him. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He doesn't even judge himself. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. We could not be more different from Paul. We are constantly comparing ourselves to others. If I think of myself as a bad person, I do not have any confidence. If I think of myself as a sinner, as someone who is filled with pride, someone filled with lust and anger and greed, and all the things that Paul says he is filled with, I have no confidence. Do you remember that Paul said in my favorite summary of the gospel, I think it's in Timothy, he says, uh, this is a trustworthy saying. And he's summarizing the gospel in a sentence. This is a trustworthy saying 
that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So this is Paul's view of himself. He didn't say, I was a murderer of Christians. I rounded up children, women, men. I tore families apart. I killed them with rocks, right? He doesn't say, I was the chief of sinners. He says, I am. This is Paul's view of himself day to day to day. We might think that he would have very low self-esteem, and he's saying, I'm not worried about esteem. I'm not in the courtroom. We don't think like him because we judge ourselves. We set our standards, and then we condemn ourselves. The ego will never be satisfied that way. Paul is saying something astounding. He's saying, I don't care what you think, and I don't care what I think. He's bringing us into new territory we know nothing about. These are uncharted waters in our culture, in the cultures of the history of the world. There's something liberating. He's going to explain to us the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of what meeting Christ and knowing Christ and who he is for me does for the ego. It simply sets it aside. And the ego, having been laying aside, allows us to be free to enjoy the Lord and enjoy the world and enjoy and bless one another, whether I'm being criticized, whether I'm being praised. And it's not afraid of people's praise because that praise isn't constantly puffing you up and you don't have to be on guard thinking, oh no, I'm going to get really proud if people praise me. And you don't have to worry, oh no, I'm going to be ruined. I'm going to have another terrible day if people tear me down. A test as to, to see whether or not we have been transformed by the gospel is how much people's uh, criticism of us affects us. Paul had reached a place where his ego draws no more attention to itself than any other part of his body. C.S. Lewis said that if you meet a truly gospel humble person, they won't be telling you that they're a nobody. You won't see signs that their ego is deflated flat. Think about Moses. The scripture says Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. It also says in another place that he was powerful in word. I think it said powerful in word and action, right? So he was a man of commanding presence and, of, and strong of speech. But what did he say to the Lord? He kind of stuttered and he said, I can't talk. <laughs> a, a truly gospel humble person doesn't think about themselves and isn't drawing attention to themselves. Think about Paul. Paul was, you could think of it by worldly standards, decorated with human honors and respects. He was, you know, he'd gone to like these super advanced colleges, graduated with honors, top of his class. He was advancing above the other Pharisees even though he was a young guy. So in his youth, he was still the best, right? He knew the scriptures back to front and misused them day in and day out to bring about what he thought was right, to know with no glory to God and much glory to himself. And later, having encountered the Lord Jesus, who upon seeing it, when upon seeing his face, he became blind 
in the light of the face of Jesus. Metaphorically, he was beginning to understand that as soon as the daylight, the real daylight was turned on, that it was revealed that he had no sight at all. And later, something like scales, you could think of like huge cataracts, like little, little suction cups from the tip of a dart were on his eyes. He couldn't see a thing. And when those fell off, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Think about how he came across to people the rest of his ministry career. He said things like, I don't care if you judge me. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what I think about me. I am clearly the worst sinner on the planet, or one of them, and he's implying that we all are much worse than we think we are, like Ray Nethery says. Think about Ray Nethery. Ray Nethery is a person who's hard not to notice. When he walks through the back door, um, you almost see him stoop. He's like six foot something, what, six foot four, six foot six. He has a commanding presence and a large frame, a strong voice. He's well-educated. He was a, he's been a very well-known Christian leader in Campus Crusade and the Alliance for New World Churches, etc., etc. He's known and worked with these big-name people in Christian circles. So maybe we should really look up to him. So when you meet him, does he talk himself up? I've never heard him talk about himself. Does he... Does he talk bad about himself? I've never heard him talk about himself. When you meet Ray Netheray, he looks at you, and it's not like this intense gaze, like he's calculating you and measuring you like you're an inch tall and, and you feel bad about yourself. He looks at you, and his eyes and his voice is like full of love, and his attention is fixed on you in the most comfortable way possible. And you can tell that he really, really cares about you. And wonderfully, this guy is like this to... I think everybody he talks with, his attention is turned away from himself and towards you. So C.S. Lewis says that if you meet a truly gospel humble person, they won't be telling you that they're a nobody. A truly gospel humble person is not a self-loving person or a self-hating person. He or she is a self-forgetful person. A gospel humble person is like the Olympic figure skater who wins second place. They win the silver. But they're thrilled about the three triple jumps that the person who took the gold did. They're, they're free to enjoy the success, the, the beauty, the, the good work, the riches of others without jealousy, without boasting, without belittling without this pride, without this physio, this being puffed up and inflated or deflated. And we said before, here is a test of, uh, of where the gospel has impacted your life. And it has impacted us all, but most of us, all of us, need it to impact our ego more. The gospel humble person isn't particularly hurt by people's criticism. That wouldn't describe us, most of us, most of the time. Usually we're hurt by people's criticism or, or we're swollen by their compliments. So how do you get that transformed view of yourself? How did Paul get this blessed self-forgetfulness? He does tell us 
but we have to look carefully. First he says, I don't care what you think, I don't care what I think. In other words, he doesn't look to them for the verdict, he doesn't look for, to himself for the verdict. Then he says, my conscience is clear, I know of nothing against me, but that does not make me innocent. The word translated innocent comes from the word justify. The word for justify is the same one he uses throughout Romans and Galatians. Here, Paul is saying that even if his conscience is clear, that does not justify. What Paul is looking for, what Madonna is looking for, what we are all looking for is an ultimate verdict that we are important and valuable. We look for that ultimate verdict every day in all the situations and people around us. And that means that every single day we are on trial. Every day we put ourselves back in a courtroom. But do you notice how Paul says he does not care what the Corinthians think of him or what any human court thinks? It's odd that he is talking about courts. After all, the Corinthians are not a court. He's talking metaphorically, and he's saying that the problem with self-esteem, whether it is high or low, is that every single day we are in the courtroom, every single day we are on trial, that is the way everyone's identity works. In the courtroom, you have the prosecution and the defense, and everything we do is providing evidence for the prosecution or evidence for the defense. Some days we feel we are winning the trial, and other days we feel we are losing it. But Paul says that he has found the secret. The trial is over for him. He is out of the courtroom. It is gone. It is over because the ultimate verdict is in. Paul knows that they cannot justify him and that he cannot justify himself. So what does he say? He says, it is the Lord that judges me. It is only his opinion that counts. Do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus that you can get the verdict before you get the performance? The atheist might say they get their self-image from being a good person. They are a good person, and they hope that eventually they will get a verdict that confirms that they are a good person. Performance leads to the verdict. For the Buddhist, too, performance leads to the verdict. If you are a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All this means that every day you are in the courtroom, every day you are on trial, that is the problem. Paul is saying that in Christianity, the verdict leads to performance. It is not the performance that leads to the verdict. In Christianity, the moment we believe, the Lord says over us, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Or take Romans 8 that says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christianity, the moment we believe, God imputes Christ's own perfect performance to us as if it were our own and adopts us into his family. The verdict is in. And now I perform on the basis of the verdict. Because he loves me and accepts me, I do not have to do things just to build up my resume, just to build up my reputation. I do not have to do things to make me look good. 
I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people, not so I can feel better about myself, not so I can fill up my emptiness. With every other form of identity and every other badge or accolade we might award ourselves, it's always a case of the verdict coming from the performance. We might find security in labeling ourselves a good person or a free person or a religious person or a morally virtuous person. Whatever it is, it's always the same. The performance leads to the verdict. But the verdict never comes. Madonna says so, and she should know. As successful as she is, she has heard people praising her year in and year out for like a generation. She's one of the most successful people in our modern time. Madonna has heaps of talents and tremendous guts, but she said the verdict never comes. In everything she did, she never found the ultimate verdict. But in Christianity, the verdict leads to the performance. Paul's answer is that he is out of the courtroom, he's out of the trial, because Jesus went on trial instead. It was an unjust trial in a falsely established kangaroo court, but he did not complain. Like a lamb before the shearers, he was silent. He was struck, beaten, put to death. Why? As our substitute. He took the condemnation we deserve. He faced the trial that should be ours so that we do not have to face any more trials. So we simply need to ask God to accept us because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Then, the only person whose opinion counts looks at me and he finds me to be more valuable than all the jewels on earth. How can we worry about being snubbed now? How can we worry about being ignored now? How can we care that much about what we look like in the mirror? These things don't matter anymore. Self-forgetfulness takes you out of the courtroom. The trial is over. The verdict is in. He has taken our place and in so doing has brought us up to his place. And there, as one congregation, as one church worldwide, we remain. Let's close in prayer. Father, there's nobody like you in heaven or on earth there's, no, but there's never been anybody like you who would love so much and get so little in return. But wonderfully and rightly so, you get all the glory for what you've done. And we see this, that in this world, this world filled with overinflated or flattened egos, in this world filled with much pain and suffering, in this broken world, where the goodness of your creation is damaged, even very damaged, groaning, waiting 
for the sons of God to be revealed, waiting for our bodies to be glorified and become like your glorious body. In this world, and through our repeated failures, and through our not measuring up, we see you glorified. We see your glory at its pinnacle and peak in the grace of the Son of God being poured out and dying and replacing sinners and making us to be clean, clothed, pure family, brothers and sisters of your Son. In no other world except this fallen world would we so clearly see your glory, even the glory of your grace in loving sinners. So now, Lord, empower us to receive this gospel every day. Fill us with strength in your Holy Spirit to meditate on these scriptures, on these realities that show us who you are and draw our attention to you having done what we couldn't do to make us clean. And so, Lord, lift us up from the traditional way of thinking that is all around us and make us one people, not with divisions, not with pride and boasting, not in comparing ourselves to one another for good or for bad, but forgetting ourselves because we go through this gospel every day. That we might be one, just as you prayed in John 17, and that we might somehow be one, even as you are one, Lord. This is a great mystery to us, and it seems so far off, but we know that you can and will accomplish this. And so for your strength, we again pray. Thank you so much for loving us. Now, Lord, fill us with love for one another. Amen.